Hello, I'm Emily Buchanan, and this is a London Business School Review podcast about happiness. Organisations are now taking an intense interest in happiness and the link to productivity. Governments, too, are moving away from the purely economic concept of GDP to measuring the well-being of a nation. In this podcast, you'll hear from three organisational behaviour experts, Professor Dan Cable and Assistant Professors Selin Kesebier and Michael Park. Together, they explore happiness from the perspective of individuals, organisations and governments. Let's start with individuals. Are you happy at work? Or is Dan Cable right to say that for most people, work is just a necessary slog? Most people in the world are not happy at work. 78% of the world, you know, if they measure, for instance, 1.7 million people, 63 countries, 101 companies, about 78% of the people are disengaged from work and they feel that they have to shut off at work. They feel like work's a place they have to go to shut off. And so whether that makes them unhappy, whether those are the same constructs we could have a conversation about, but certainly they would see work as a four-letter word. A commute to the weekend. I asked Dan's colleague, Michael Park, should being happy be the ultimate goal? I think that in general, happiness is a good state for people to pursue, right? And generally, if we look at kind of the research on, on humans and how we're motivated to pursue goals, when we're making progress toward our goals and we're achieving our goals, then we're generally in the state of happiness. And when we're not, we're not making progress or we're not achieving our goals, then we tend to not be happy. So I think, yes, it's a good goal to pursue. The no part is that the ultimate kind of ideal for people and organizations has to do with, this is often a very complex formula. Uh, Happiness means a lot of things to different people. It's very nuanced. And if we don't dive into that complexity, then sometimes it's applied a bit too simplistically and may miss the point. Happiness, of course, is a complex emotion and differs for different people. Michael Park believes it's important for each person to understand what actually makes them content. I have a very good friend, an entrepreneur who we'll call Al. And Al is working for this business intelligence consulting company, um, 50 people or so, a small startup, and doing very successful, probably top three in the company. Um, it was in charge of a team, meeting with clients, doing all sorts of exciting work. And from a happiness standpoint, you might argue, oh, this person was happy, but he wasn't. And the reason was he had other emotions that he wasn't getting fulfilled at this workplace. He wasn't getting experiences of a pride because he had anything he built himself. He was working for another company. He wasn't getting really passion because he wasn't pursuing the things that truly interested him. So what did he do? He ended up quitting his job and trying to start a company, taking less pay, you know, really risky situation, less secure, because those emotions of pride and passion were his key indicators of happiness, whereas for other people, it might be something like security, calmness, stability are their key emotions that drive their happiness. And so the key point here is that um, happiness is a gestalt term where people um, kind of make an overall perception of how happy they are in their lives, but it's really made up of these, these micro-motivations, these micro-emotions that kind of determine our overall level of happiness. Selin Kesebier understands there's another important factor to our happiness levels, and it's all around us. 
There is research that shows very clearly that people who are connected to nature, people, for example, who spend time out in nature uh, on weekends, are saying they are happier. So uh, at the individual level, we do know that spending time out in nature increases people's well-being, it improves people's mood, but it's not just about mood, it also increases people's ability to concentrate, people's ability to solve problems. So basically it improves cognitive functioning as well. So it has uh, a lot of positive benefits. It has health benefits as well. So um, even having some flowers in hospital rooms has been shown to reduce the amount of painkillers patients have to use. So so we, we do find a clear relationship between exposure to nature and positive outcomes such as physical health and mental health. So how is all this relevant to organizations? Why should they worry if their workforce is unhappy? Surely a company needs to be concerned about business and not about how people feel. Michael Park argues that technological change has created a need for businesses to get better at innovating and staying relevant. As technology and and new kind of innovations come out, um, we're needing different sets of skills than we used in the past as well, right? We're needing humans to be much more creative, much more innovative. And given that, we know that um, some happiness and positive emotions can be conducive to that type of work and the collaborative nature of work. And so I think that's also why this has become more of a, a conversation in organizations today is, is pursuing this happiness. You can pay people the going rate, but get so much more out of them if they think that it's exciting or interesting, if it gives them a chance to use what they're best at, if they feel that the purpose of that act is worthwhile or interesting. In the 80s and the 90s, we talked about a war for talent. And that war was, how do we attract and poach the best and the brightest from our competitors? And that was seen as the human capital movement. I think there's a new war for talent, which is once you have the best and the brightest, how do you turn them on instead of switch them off? How do you unleash what's within them in terms of their energy and their passion, as opposed to shut them down and make them dissatisfied with work? One solution may lie in Dan Cable's new book, Alive at Work, which analyzes the neuroscience of helping people love what they do. Apparently, the secret lies in the ventral striatum. This part of our brain, called the seeking system, when it is activated, drops dopamine into our bodies. And dopamine is a feel-good drug. Dopamine is the part of our chemistry, our biochemistry, that causes us to feel enthusiastic. It makes us feel energized. It pushes us to do more of what makes us curious, to learn more. It also leads to what psychologists call zest. It's like Martin Seligman, would, he would label this zest. It's this feeling, if I could say it this way, that life is an adventure and not a hassle. Zest is when you approach life and you breathe in and you say, wow, can I do this? As opposed to a, I don't really feel like going through this again. How many people commuting each day exactly. on, the, on the underground feel that? One other thing I'd like to mention about dopamine that I find really relevant here Dopamine controls our time perception. Dopamine is what allows us to perceive whether time is moving fast or moving 
at a glacial pace. And you and I both know jobs where we have felt that the minutes just grind by and that the hours are just something to try to kill to get to lunch. Many, many people do not experience much dopamine because they're not allowed to do the things that activate the seeking system. They're specifically forbidden to be creative, to try new things, to keep learning. That is unhappiness at work. And it's interesting because we've had a big culture of long hours at work, people feeling they have to spend all this time at work. But actually what you're saying is if there was lots of dopamine flowing, they wouldn't even notice that they'd and just spend six, they'd, they'd have 16 hour days and come home feeling quite... Hot. 16 hours would be a bit much. <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, I'll be a little provocative. If you thought of designing work so that you could release dopamine, you could make work addictive in the same way that, for instance, World of Warcraft is addictive to the players. Once they strap on that headset and they start solving problems as a team, they'll play for four and five hours in a sitting. That sounds a lot like work. The difference is instead of being paid, they pay to do it. The idea of exploring new worlds, the idea of having a special skill that you add into the team, something unique that adds value, of seeing your impact on other people, that becomes addictive. That becomes something that humans want to do more of. Another approach is to simply allow employees to be authentically themselves, to feel how they feel and not feel bad about it, whether the emotions are positive or negative. Michael Park again. So if we allow people to be their authentic selves at work, where they're experiencing the emotions they experience and expressing those, then they'll be happier because that avoids those problems that we talked about earlier, which is they don't feel pressures to kind of suppress their feelings if they're not happy. They don't share information to upset colleagues because they want to avoid not having that harmony. And I think um, you have some really good examples of companies starting to do this. So for example, one company, is Pixar and they create a structure where they have this brain trust and they allow this meeting of, of people all at a similar level where they say there's no hierarchy, everyone's on equal footing and they come to get honest, candid feedback about their work. And by creating this safe place, it allows people to kind of share their authentic feelings and work them out in a much safer way than just sort of being random with what kind of you're offering to people. So I think that's one clear example that allows people to be authentic, their authentic selves in a safe place. So it, it mustn't be fake. I mean, this whole happiness thing in the workplace has got to be a genuine thing, not just another policy that's pushed down the line from the top. Totally. And, and in this work, again, we see that authenticity matters. So when you require people to be happy, as in some jobs, for example, service organizations, it can really make people sort of feel like they have to fake it at all times, especially when dealing with customers. Um, but you are seeing new approaches where companies, instead of saying this is a requirement, they're really trying to, okay, how can we create a workplace where people are happy and want to share that with customers authentically? And one of the way, which is really interesting into this point about um, having people be authentic in their, their authentic expressions of their feelings, a lot of pushback is like, well, you can't do that with customers, right? You can't really tell customers how you feel because you know the customer is always right. And that kind of mantra is, is spread throughout a lot of service organizations. Well, you even see some uh, companies and some restaurants starting to say, well, we won't serve rude customers, right? So they're putting some of that 
ownership back on the clients and therefore saying we're going to create an authentic environment where our employees can treat you as a human being and if you're being disrespectful they don't have to just fake their happiness and try to be there and you see some evidence that people respect that right they they can respect people for kind of um, sharing their authentic feelings even if you don't like it at the time so companies have a lot to think about well-being neuroscience and authenticity Dan Cable argues it's worth getting all this right. He's seen examples all over the world where prioritizing employee happiness and well-being has delivered real business benefits. A study that we did in Wipro, which is in India, they're a huge technology company. Part of their organization, which is very hard to work in, is a call center where you handle customer complaints. So if you bought a Hewlett-Packard printer and the paper wasn't feeding right and you were mad, you call up Hewlett Packard and you're going to yell at them. You're actually channeled to India where there's a customer service rep that's going to help you solve your problem. It wasn't working that well. At Wipro, they were at about a 60% satisfaction and they wanted to get to 80% as world class that that would be their minimum. So we went in there, um, myself, uh, Fran Gino at Harvard University and Brad Stotts, he's at North Carolina. We go and we learn that this job is really tough. Because nobody calls happy. Nobody calls and says, thanks, it's working great. Day after day, hour after hour, call after call, it's entitled Westerners that want a quick answer to their problem. And it really is stressful and it grinds them down. And they have to also de-Indianize themselves and try to take on an accent. They try to use Western slang. Very difficult. So we did this study where we tried to ignite a little bit of their seeking system, where we went in there and we said, can we have 700 people that you're hiring and try different things with different people? And in some people, uh, they hire them in what they affectionately call batches, 15 people. We did randomly assigned to do what they always do, which is classic jobs-based training. And in other people, we randomly assigned to a condition where a senior manager came in the very first hour of the very first day. And that manager said to them, before we even talk about the job, we want to know more about you. This is your very first hour of your very first day with Wipro. We want you to start by writing for 15 minutes about who you are when you're at your best. Write down specific stories of times that you were at your potential. And not even just at work. Might be at work, might be at home. We gave them time and they wrote. Kind of a weird thing to have people do. Then there's 15 of them sitting in a room and he says, now you've not even met each other yet. What I want you to do is sit down together, introduce yourselves, but introduce your best self. Tell each other what you're capable of when you're at your best. Maybe read one of those stories. So they do that. And then all those people end up going afterwards, after that one hour, they all go into the regular training. We learned after tracking these people for six months that they were 32% less likely to quit and they were making customers statistically, significantly, substantially happier, 11% happier. But that's extraordinary, after one meeting. One hour of one meeting. We didn't spend any money. We didn't change the technology. We didn't paint the walls. We didn't put in bean bags. And what was that about? Was that making them feel valued as people? Could be more than one thing. Well, one thing that we know it is, because we replicated this back in Boston with some data entry operators, is that they felt that people at work knew who they really were. So you can call that self-expression. And some of them made comments like, I've worked at some places for two years and the people didn't know me as well as they know me now after one day. It's this idea of being known for who we are 
and maybe our strengths and not just a number in a machine. This idea of hiring 15, 20 people a day, everybody gets a number and then they're shoved on a conveyor belt that's called the job. For human beings, that's a bit repellent. But you could have predicted that. I mean, 100 years ago, you could have said that's pretty demeaning and pretty miserable. And, you know, most people wouldn't want to do that. That's such a good point. A response to that would be to say, I have worked with companies for 35 years on hiring and onboarding, and never has one done it this way. No company I've ever worked with has started by saying, it's your first day, we want to know more about you. What they usually start with, it's your first day, let us show you what you need to do. But creating happiness demands a different kind of leadership. Dan has seen what a difference a more collaborative and supportive approach can make. Let's talk about another specific example. There is a food um, and milk delivery company right here in the UK. And this company was not doing very well because Okado came out. And they offered a lot more delivery options and delivery timing options. And this company only delivered early in the morning. And these drivers were disgruntled. They were treated like children by authoritarian managers, some for 30 years. They were very disconnected with the business, to say the least. As they were loading up the trucks, you could taste the cynicism in the air. They would openly mock the managers. It was a very parent-child relationship. And the management saw their job as gathering information and then once a week yelling at them for what they'd messed up. And it was called the roundsman meeting. Ten minutes of getting yelled at every week. It was going horribly, of course. And then all of a sudden, they wanted these people's good ideas and they wanted their customer satisfaction. They were looking for ways to improve. They weren't very keen to give them at first. But um, what happened was they hired a consulting firm. They came in there and looked at what was happening and said, oh my, (laughs) you have no alignment between customer satisfaction and ideas and this relationship you have with managers. So what they did is they took that 10-minute weekly meeting and they changed it so that the only question that the leader asked was the first question. They walked in and they said, how can I help you create better customer service? And they listened. First week, not too many people opened up, but one did. One said, well, you're always yelling at us for getting our whites. They deliver in all whites. You're always yelling at us for getting our whites dirty, but then you make us wear our whites when we're loading the truck. So either don't make us wear our whites or get us aprons. So the manager says, oh, (laughs) yes. He goes out and gets them aprons or they don't have to wear their whites. And other people saw that and said, hmm. So somebody else the next week said, well, here's an idea. You're looking for all these ways to try to increase. We're delivering in the morning right before parents are packing the kids' lunches. Let's deliver gogurts and string cheese and stuff that kids like. Oh, okay. So you start doing that, those items start taking off. Other people see that. It gets to the point where employees, these drivers have been shut off for decades, are bringing in pages of notes. People are bringing in ideas about, for example, that we could deliver dry cleaning, that we could deliver those Amazon packages instead of them having to go to the post office. Loads of ideas are coming in. The problem became, how do we deal with all these good ideas? How do we sort through them? The important thing is, when we, as drivers, my, my father was a truck driver, as call center operators, we still have this part of our brain that's urging us to try new things, to talk about our unique perspective, to give ideas that might 
be an idea that I had and to try it and give it life. We all have that part of our brain. While individuals and organizations are developing methods of increasing happiness in the workplace, is there also a role for government as well? Celine Kesebier has analyzed happiness on a macro level. Her research shows that richer societies are not necessarily more happy. There is a positive correlation between well-being, happiness and income. So there is clearly a correlation there. Um, but the interesting thing is there is also um, the finding that as within a single country, income increases, there is not necessarily an increase in overall well-being in that country. And this is what is called the Easterlin paradox. And it was identified by an economist, Paul Easterlin. And he first observed in the US uh, after the Second World War, after 1945, until 1970. There's a very substantial um, steady increase in income in the US during that period. But if you look at um, people's responses to the question, are you happy with your life? There isn't really a change over that period. So um, there it goes up, it comes down, no clear upward trend, even though, well, wouldn't you expect that if wealth increases happiness across nations, wouldn't you expect it in the same country? But it's not what has been the case, at least in the US. And Selin says a key factor to a nation's happiness is how the wealth is distributed. Actually, an interesting example of that is China. So in the last 25 years, if you look at China, there is a very clear increase in income, but really no increase at all in uh, overall happiness. So we can explain that by looking at countries where income was accompanied by an increase in happiness uh, versus countries where increasing income did not come with increased happiness. And um, this is what we did in our research. We looked at 34 countries, um, some of them developed countries, mostly in Europe and some Latin American countries. And we have very clear evidence in both sets of data that inequality is negatively related to happiness overall. So in countries, when inequality increases, happiness tends to go down. But why should governments worry about happiness? They might say, but we need to just get the economy going. You know, happiness can come later. It's almost a philosophical question, right? To me, it doesn't seem obvious at all why the economy should come first if it is not serving people's happiness. Um, if you ask people, uh, would you want to be happy or would you want to be very wealthy, but you are not going to be happy? I don't know most people would go for the wealth. My guess is most people would just prefer to be happy. And why should governments think differently? Um, there is just the precedence that we have been focusing so much on uh, the economy and so much on the numbers. And it's for some good reasons, right? Because obviously economy matters. The economy does matter. Unemployment, for example, is something that we clearly know uh, reduces uh, happiness. People do need resources, people do need money, and just being able to work is a source of dignity. So these things matter. But again, it's not the only way of aiming for something good.
Also, individuals, organisations and governments have a responsibility to consider happiness as an important element of business life. But for all of us in a hurry, are there any quick wins? Michael Park. Number one, happiness is a broad term that is kind of an aggregate of a lot of different positive emotions. So for you as a person, what are your drivers? Is it love? Is it pride? Is it passion? Is it security? Is it calmness? What really drives your happiness and understanding those? Number two, pursuing happiness is an admirable goal, but realize that you're not going to be happy all the time. And suppressing the times when you're not, as opposed to actively coping with them, oftentimes isn't the best strategy to be happy continuously. So make sure you're actively coping with those negative experiences and help transforming those back into positive experiences. And number three, the way that we can do this is more talk about authenticity. Are you experiencing authentic positive emotions? And if not, are you having your negative experiences and learning how to deal with them as opposed to suppressing them. So that's both important for your own personal happiness, but also in making sure that people aren't just suppressing all the negativity out of the workplace and actively managing it and sharing it so that they can work through those problems. And here are Dan Cable's top tips. I think in the short term, there's two or three quick wins that you'd get to. Um, One is this notion of a best self-report. When I mentioned that around Wipro, you can also put that on steroids, where they go out to friends and family, mentors, professors from college, and you have them write stories about when they've seen you at your best. And it's quite an aha. It gives you a new look at who I can be when I'm at my very best. But the notion of using these best self-reports and best self-narratives to turn people on about what they're capable of, I'd call that a quick win. A second thing that we've done that is, we've done this in a hospital and in a a not-for-profit called Make-A-Wish Foundation, we've allowed employees to create their own job titles, where the job titles reflect the unique value that they bring to the team. And in that, we found in both a qualitative study and a quantitative experiment that we were able to reduce burnout on the job by allowing people to express what they did best. These are things that don't cost money. These are things that are relatively cheap that you can do. A third one that I'd add right on the heels of that are strength-based conversations. Leaders can do these for free, but it's a matter of sitting down with people and asking them, what part of the job turns you on the most? What do you think you do that adds the most value here? Let's talk about some of the strengths that you bring that you could bring more of to turn work into a platform for learning. This way of talking and thinking is so different from the SMART goals, the cascading objectives that start with, we need to be at this profit margin in the next year. What you have to do on your job is make these cuts. It's a really different type of conversation and it ignites people instead of dulling them. So that's one. There's a phrase called humble leadership that I think will be increasingly important for leaders to understand. Starting with the assumption that as a leader, I'm overhead, I'm a cost, unless I'm helping get the best out of the people that I serve. Some wise advice for company leaders. Well, that's all now from our three experts, Dan Cable, Michael Park and Selin Kesebier. We have a lot of other podcasts containing fresh ideas and opinion from London Business School's leading thinkers. They're available from our website, www.london.edu forward slash LBSR. And you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite app.